have your Bibles, could you please open to Esther chapter 9? Esther chapter 9, we come to our second last sermon in Esther. We will finish next week. Esther chapter 9. And I've entitled the sermon this evening, The D-Day. The D-Day. Before we begin, we'll open in a word of prayer and commit this time unto the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wonderful opportunity we have to come this evening. We thank you that we can come and offer our prayers unto you, Father. We thank you now that we can come around to your word. I do trust that our hearts are prepared to hear from you this evening. I do pray that you would grant us the gift of illumination this evening. Please give me clarity, and I pray that we can apply this to our lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In our lives, we have certain days that change our lives dramatically, don't we? Normally, most days are pretty mundane. Same thing, different day, just plodding along, just chipping away. But at times, we have days that change our lives, and normally, these days just don't come out of the blue. Normally, you are aware of the forthcoming days when a certain occasion is going to occur, or a particular decision is going to be made that is going to change your life, either positively or negatively. And often, we are counting down to this day either with a sense of excitement and anticipation or with a sense of fear and trepidation. Events in our life like this are like awaiting the results of an exam that determines whether you pass your degree, waiting to see if you get this particular job that involves a large pay rise. It could be awaiting a particular health diagnosis, the birth of a child, or one that I understand rather well. I have a minute-by-minute countdown for is getting married. And I'm sure we can all think of our own scenario. We all have these days when things change dramatically, and leading up to this moment of truth often can be a time of Anxiety, fear, great joy, great depression. The vast majority of human emotions are on display. Imagine if there was a day marked on your calendar when the king had given permission for anyone who hated you, who hated your race of people, to take your life. And you had been given the right to defend yourself. This is the situation that the Jews found themselves in. What emotions they were feeling at this time, we cannot be sure. But what we must understand is that they are not guaranteed victory from this decree. They had been given the right to defend themselves, yet this did not guarantee that they would conquer the enemy. Much faith was still required. Although they would have been relieved to have secured this decree of self-defense, there still might have been a slight tinge of fear and apprehension as this D-Day drew near. It is this D-Day or moment of truth for the Jews that we will consider in the time that we have together this 
this evening. Firstly, let's consider the assembling. The assembling. This is seen in verse 1 and verse 2. Read with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1. Now, in the twelfth month, that is the month Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's commandment and his decree drew near to put into execution, in the day that the enemies of the Jews hoped to have power over them, though it was turned to the contrary, that the Jews had rule over them that hated them. The Jews gathered themselves together in their cities throughout all the provinces of the king Ahasuerus to lay hand on such as sought their hurts, and no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. The day had finally arrived, the day that Haman had determined by the casting of the lot was upon them, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, equivalent to our late February, early March, the day that was designed and purposed to destroy the Jewish race and to destroy the promised messianic seed. But oh how things had panned out differently to what was originally expected. The King James phrases it that it was turned to the contrary. The tables had turned, the roles had been reversed. In verse 2, the inspired, the inspired writer takes half of this verse to spell out the preparation of the Jews for this conflict. And I want to draw our attention towards this minor detail. The text says they gathered themselves together. This makes very logical sense, for fighting in a group would improve one's chance of survival and ultimate victory dramatically. Obviously, if you fight by yourself or with a couple of men, you will probably get killed in a large group. There would be more chance of survival. What this gathering together makes clear is that they prepared themselves for this forthcoming day. They didn't wait for the enemy to be upon them and then decide, now it's time to act. They were prepared. They were waiting for the enemy. And this is a relevant spiritual principle for us, isn't it? We should be prepared to do battle against evil. Strike evil with the first blow. Not wait till we are down before we fight back. But I also want us to understand that God could have struck these people dead by simply speaking. God could have sent 10,000 angels to protect his people. Remember the story of Hezekiah, when thousands were struck dead by angels. But God, at this time, uses people. And this is how God most often works. He loves to use human agencies like you and I. God doesn't need us. But he chooses to use us and allows us the blessing of being used. But just like Israel, we too need to be willing to be used. We need to be active and also prepare ourselves to be used. We are reminded yet again in the text what the Jews were preparing for. 
the Jews in all of the provinces were gathered to conquer those who come up against them. This once again confirming that this was self-defense. This was not some brutal campaign where the Jews would take anybody and everybody's life. This was not a general annihilation of everybody that the Jews didn't like, but only against those who sought to harm them. They did not abuse this decree. Having played their part in diligently preparing and being willing to act, God now plays his part. The last phrase of verse 2 says, And no man could withstand them, for the fear of them fell upon all people. This doesn't mean that people could not come and fight against them. This certainly happened. But it means that they could not prevail. God's people were not going to lose. And one of the reasons for this was that God had caused fear of the Jews to come upon the Persians. What this exactly, what this exactly sorry, entailed, we cannot be certain. But I would like to suggest that it has to do with the dramatic change of circumstances in the life of the Jews, the change of power and authority that had occurred, particularly what Mordecai now possessed, which we see in the second point. But what we learn is that God can create attitudes in people to help accomplish His purpose. And this is a wonderful truth even for us. God can make people favour us, make people scared of us, make people generous towards us, or make people hostile towards us. God can do all of this in order to accomplish His plan. He's truly in control. He is truly sovereign. And this reminds us of a verse in the New Testament in the book of Romans, If God be for us, who can be against us? The odds had been stacked against the Jews throughout this entire narrative, but the odds mean nothing if God is on your side. But it was not only the fear of the Jews that God used to help aid in the victory, but more specifically, it was the great fear of Mordecai. And this leads us to the second point. We see the allies allies. This is seen in verse 3 and 4. Verse 3. And all the rulers, the provinces, and the lieutenants, and the deputies, and officers of the king helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame went out throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai waxed greater and greater. You and I would anticipate and expect for God to help his people. But in verse 3 and 4, we see support coming from where we would not expect it. This unexpected allegiance came from the rulers. Three titles are given, lieutenant, deputy and officer. These are the same three titles of the men that were ordered to implement both decrees. But now it's evident their entire support is behind but one of these decrees. 
What this particular support entailed, we are not told. Would have probably included moral support, financial support, military support, and also discouraging others to fight against the Jews. The reason, according to our text, for throwing their weight behind the Jews was because they feared Mordecai. Three reasons are given in verse 4 as to why they feared Mordecai. Number one, he was great in the king's house. This meaning they feared him because of the position that he occupied. Remember, Mordecai was second in charge over the entire kingdom. He had much power, including having power over this very group of rulers. He had the power to take their jobs and to take much more. The second reason we're given is the fear for Mordecai was great because his fame had spread throughout the provinces. The story of his rapid promotion, the protection that the king had granted he and his people, and the fact that he was related to the queen had caused many to fear Mordecai. The third reason that's given is because he waxed greater and greater. This could be a reference to his power and his influence, the idea of gaining strength, or it could be referring to his great skill in leadership and administration. Mordecai was now a powerful man, and it would be wise for those below him to do as he would wish, to do the things that would please him. And this was most certainly happening But I also can't help but to think that perhaps these rulers remember another irrevocable Persian decree and what happened to those who went against what the king wanted. Remember the decree that Darius ordered in the book of Daniel that resulted in Daniel being cast into the lion's den. Darius didn't want this man Daniel to be thrown in but due to being convinced by the rulers to issue this decree, he was left with no choice. But when Daniel was miraculously spared, when God shut up the mouths of the lions, the king was quick to have these very rulers who had this decree written thrown into the lion's den where they were devoured. Perhaps these rulers remembered what happened to those who were against what the king wanted and it was evident that the king was on the side of the Jews. So it, would, so it would be wise if they too took that side. What a remarkable change that had occurred for the Jewish people. At one time all was against them, but now the tables had turned. What about Mordecai? He had gone through much trial and heartache, but his crisis became in God's providence a stepping stone to great influence. And this, beloved, is often still how God works today. He uses the difficult experiences of our lives, the trials, the heartache, to make us a more useful servant, to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. Having all this support, the scene is now set for the D-Day. All those who sided with Haman did not back down, but were determined to annihilate the Jews. So thirdly, let's consider the attack. The attack part 
1. We see this in verses 5 through to 10 and verse 16. Verse 5. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan, the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men and Parshandatha and Dalphon and Ashpatha and Paratha and Adaliah and Aridatha and Pamashtha and Arisai and Aridai and Vizestha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, slew they. But on the spoil laid they not their hand. And verse 16. But the other Jews that were in the king's province gathered themselves together and stood for their lives and had rest from their enemies and slew of their foes seventy and five thousand, but they laid not their hands on the prey. The primary theme of this entire book is the preservation of the Jews, particularly the preservation of the Messianic line. And the forthcoming verses present the very details of this. The day had now finally come, and this day led to terrible bloodshed, just like Haman had desired, yet it wasn't to whom he expected. In verses 5 through to 10, we have described the events that occur in Shushan, which is the capital city. And of course, the events of this particular city are extremely important because this is where the queen was located and she herself was a Jew. Verse 5 describes to us the battle that takes place. The portrayal given makes it seem that this was incredibly one-sided, that the Jews were not even touched. And it seems to be like this because that's how it was. The Jews smote their enemies with the sword. All those who were driven by their great hatred for God's people rose up to fight but were quickly smote to the ground. Great was the slaughter and much was the destruction. Verse 6 informs us that 500 men lost their lives, this including the 10 sons of Haman, which are all their names within that list that I struggled to read. So just within this city... Despite all the favour that the Jews had bestowed upon them, still, still 500 men rose up to annihilate the Jewish race, their motivation being hatred. And this reminds you and I of the great danger of the sin of hatred. Hatred can lead one to do many wicked things. This should not be something that we harbour in our hearts for who knows what wicked behaviour It may produce, if you struggle with this, deal with it tonight. But this fighting and bloodshed was not limited to the capital city. Verse 16 tells us the happenings throughout the entire empire. Verse 16 once again stresses that the actions of the Jews were in self-defense. It says that they were standing for their lives. This was their battle plan. They were not the aggressors, but they would only attack those who came to seek for their life. The number that was taken was indeed great. 
We are told that 75,000 lost their lives throughout the empire in this one battle. What a staggering number on two counts. Firstly, what a great loss of life. 75,000 people in one day, this is a tragedy. But it also reveals still the great animosity towards the Jews, doesn't it? There are some who debate the legitimacy of this large number. But if we think about it, this empire consists of 127 provinces. This means that there would be roughly 590 deaths per province. And considering there was 800 in Shushan over the two days, this was certainly a very real possibility. And Josephus, in his writing, confirms this exact number that the Bible does also. After both of these battles, and the one other confrontation that we will consider shortly, we are told that the Jews did not lay their hands on the spoil. This meaning they didn't take the money, the property, or possessions of those they defeated. They didn't enjoy the spoils of battle, even though the decree that was written by Mordecai stated that they could. So why was this? I'd like to suggest three possible explanations. Number one, this not taking the spoil may have been so they didn't make the same mistake as King Saul. He and Israel took spoil against the Amalekites when they were commanded not to. It's interesting if we remember that Haman and his family were Amalekites, so it may well be that the Jews did not want to make this mistake again. Number two, it shows that the Jews' purpose for this fighting was not for greed, it was not for personal gain, but was solely for the need of self-preservation. Number three, perhaps they gave all the spoil unto the king. We know the king was chasing money, and this would certainly be an extremely smart move politically to, to guarantee their future safety. Although this reason for this action we cannot be sure, we can be certain that the Jews certainly had an outstanding victory. At the end of this fateful day, thousands of lives had been lost, but God's people had been preserved. But it wasn't over yet. Fourthly, let's consider the appeal. The appeal, this is seen in verses 11 through to 14. Verse 11. On that day, the number of those that were slain in Shushan the palace was brought before the king. And the king said unto Esther the queen, The Jews have slain and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the palace, and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is thy petition? And it shall be granted thee, or what is thy request? And it shall be done. Then said Esther, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according unto this day's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. And the king commanded it so to be done. 
and the decree was given at Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. An official reports unto the king the happenings of the day in Shushan, and the king immediately relays this information unto his queen. His report included the number of those who had lost their lives, specifying that this included the sons of Haman. But he doesn't seem to be aware of what occurred in the other provinces. And this makes perfect sense, considering that they did not have the means of modern communication. It seems as though what has occurred has somewhat affected the king. Perhaps he has realised just how close he was to losing his queen because of this very decree. And he was obviously very anxious to satisfy his queen to make things right after his stupidity in allowing the first decree. He offers Esther anything, anything that she wants in regards to this current situation. The queen in verse 13 requests two things. She requests that another day be given unto the Jews to deal with the enemies in Shushan. It seems as though Esther had received some information from another source, perhaps Mordecai, that the enemies were going to cause further trouble, despite the decree being over. And she also requested that Haman's ten sons be placed in the public gallows. We must understand that they were already dead, but she wanted them to be seen publicly, this no doubt to act as a warning and a deterrent against this anti-Jewish behaviour. And this also happened in the Mosaic Law. Someone would be hung up. This was to act as a deterrence from the crime that they committed. Many criticise Esther because of the requests that she makes, claiming that she is bloodthirsty and that she shows a lack of love. But to me, it shows that she was not willing to settle for anything less than total victory. She was going to finish the task. Just if a previous king had completed the task of destroying the Amalekites, perhaps the Jews would not be in this situation. The king's permission was required for both of these requests to be granted. And immediately the king stamps the decree. The sons of Haman are hung. And the next day, sure enough, the information that Esther possessed was correct. And there was a further uprising. And this leads us to the fifth point, the attack part two. And this is seen in verse 15. Verse 15 says, For the Jews that were in Shushan gathered themselves together on the 14th day of the month Adar and slew 300 men at Shushan, but on their prey they laid not their hand. The Jews again gather themselves together. They were prepared and ready to defend themselves for a second time. Yet again, more enemies rise up against them, this time without the king's decree. Such was their rebellion, such was their hatred for the Jews. And on the 14th day, the results are exactly the same. Another 300 men lose their lives trying to destroy God's people. 
And some people have thrown up their hands in horror at the carnage involved in these three battles and have severely criticised the Jews for this great slaughter of the enemy. But the critics seem always to forget that the Jews did not lift the sword until the enemy lifted a sword against them. The Jews stood for their lives because the enemy attacked them. There was going to be a lot of carnage, no matter how this conflict ended. The carnage would either be the slaughtered bodies of innocent Jews, or the slaughtered bodies of those who hated the Jews. These battles were not aggressive campaigns trying to force people into Judaism. Neither was it the Jews seeking territory or financial gain, but this was simply preservation. And those that use this to teach that the Bible teaches violence for Christians is absolutely absurd. For the teachings of Jesus Christ couldn't be further from the truth. We must remember that we are now in a different dispensation. We are under a different covenant. It's different for us now. We go by the teachings of Jesus Christ. What does he teach? We are to be peacemakers, turn the other cheek. So to make those claims are absurd. This battle is now over. God's people are again preserved, and yet again they refuse to take the spoil of victory. This is the last battle of this particular campaign. The Jews have somehow been preserved. Things did not look good. The odds were heavily stacked against them, but with God... It doesn't matter what the odds may be. His will, his plan will be done. No one or no thing can frustrate the plans of God. With the battles now over, it was time to celebrate, which is where we will pick it up next week to finish this book. But I wish to close with two thoughts of application for this evening. Number one, God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. We see from the narrative before us that God protects and God delivers his people. The deliverance of Israel and the destroying of Haman teaches us that God keeps his word. If God says he's going to do something, it will be done. He does not change his mind and go back on what he has said like we often do as mankind. Within the Abrahamic covenant, God promises that from Abraham there would be a great nation and through him all the earth would be blessed. Halfway through this book, this covenant being fulfilled was not looking very promising. But now it could still be fulfilled. God kept his word. God promises Israel that he would bless those that bless them and curse those who curse them. And this promise was most certainly kept in this story. In Exodus 17.14, God promises to wipe the Amalekites off the earth. They were going to exist no more. And up until this point, this had not occurred. For Haman was still alive and so was his sons. But this was no longer the case. The word of God had been fulfilled. The Amalekites are now 
gone. God always keeps his promises. God has to keep his promises. And this, beloved, is a glorious truth for us. Think of the promises that God has made to you and me throughout the word of God. And he will keep them. He promises that he will supply our every need. He promises that his grace will be sufficient for you and for me. He promises that he will not try us over that which we can handle. Jesus Christ promises he will never leave us nor forsake us. He promises that those who believe will have eternal life. And Jesus promises that he himself will come again to take us home to glory. These are but some of the many promises God makes to you and me and he will keep them. Consider all the promises that God makes throughout the Word of God and He will keep every single one of them. Our God has to keep His promises because of who He is. And that, beloved, is a glorious truth. We serve a promise-keeping God. And secondly, nothing can frustrate God's plans. Nothing can frustrate God's plans. Haman was ultimately Satan's tool to destroy the messianic line. Satan was aware that the Messiah was going to come from the seed of Abraham, through the line of Judah, through the line of David. He knew that this was God's plan and he was determined to stop this. He tried with Pharaoh in Egypt. He tried with Haman in Persia. He tried with Herod at the birth of Jesus Christ. And all three of these failed. And this is because God's plans cannot be frustrated. If God has determined that something is going to happen or something is not going to happen, then that is what will happen. God is sovereign. Nothing, nothing at all can stop or frustrate God's plan and purposes. And that, my friend, is a wonderful truth for us as Christians, as a church. If God wants it to happen, it will. And if he doesn't, then it won't. God is sovereign. Nothing or no one can ever frustrate his plans. God is on the throne. He always has been. He always will be. And this, beloved, is a glorious truth for you and I as his people. No matter what is happening around us, God is in control. And nothing, nothing whatsoever will stop his plans from coming to pass. Amen. Let's pray.